Liverpool Leslie Hour, helping people tell their stories. And now, your host, Paul Leslie. Hey, it's me. Welcome to yet another edition of the Paul Leslie Hour. We are joined by Roger Cook, hit songwriter, and this is a rare interview. You will not find many interviews with Roger Cook out there. We talk about a little bit of this and that, a lot about his life as a songwriter. He's an inductee of the Songwriters Hall of Fame. That's the Hall of Fame that is based out of New York. They kind of favor inductees in the Broadway, musical world, pop music, rock, things like that. And he's also an inductee in the Nashville Songwriters Hall of Fame, which is more country music oriented. There are not many people who are inductees of both Hall of Fames. I think just naming a couple that are in both, there would be Jimmy Webb, Bob Dylan, I know. Anyhow, Roger Cook is one of them. He is also, my understanding, the only British inductee in the Nashville Songwriters Hall of Fame. He's written songs in a lot of different genres, uh, pop, country, and more. Some of his well-known songs include Long Cool Woman in a Blue Dress, recorded by the Hollies, I Believe in You, recorded by Don Williams, and I'd Like to Teach the World to Sing, made popular by Coca-Cola. Everybody knows that song. I'd like to teach the world to sing. I'll stop. I, I know you want to get to the interview. Some of the songs Roger Cook wrote, just to name a few more, you would have You've Got Your Troubles, recorded by The Fortunes, Good Times, Better Times, recorded by Cliff Richard, a great British singer, Home Lovin' Woman, recorded by Andy Williams, Something's Gotten a Hold of My Heart, by Gene Pitney, he co-wrote I Just Want to Dance with You with John Prine. John Prine recorded it, and George Strait also recorded it. Roger Cook has also made a few albums of his own. He is a recording artist. If you want to look them up, his albums would include Study, Meanwhile Back at the World, Minstrel in Flight, and All Right. As you're about to hear, Roger Cook is not only a great songwriter, he's a great interview subject as well. Ladies and gentlemen, it is our pleasure to welcome one of the most successful songwriters. Our special guest is Mr. Roger Cook. He is an inductee of the Songwriters Hall of Fame, as well as the Nashville Songwriters Hall of Fame. Many of his songs are known by many. Thank you so much for joining us. Most stories are best from the beginning. What was life like growing up? It was pretty humdrum. I grew up after the war years in England. I was born at the beginning of the war and lived through the war. And in 1945, of course, that was all over. But for England, the aftermath of the war went on a long time. We had rationing until 1953. So it was a pretty bare-bones existence. We had one piece of meat a week and a very a, a great shortage of candy, which really hurt. So I remember 1953 as being just a wonderful year we had a brand new queen, and rationing was gone. We could go out and buy whatever we wanted. That was a big deal. Growing up as a teenager, I was just the same as any other kid, I guess. I went to a local uh, church and stayed and kept going there until I was about 18. By this time, I was involved in uh, a little group 
a doo-wop group, you would call it here, just all vocals singing a cappella. And we were pretty good, and we won a couple of contests and got on the road and stayed on the road for about two years, and then some of the guys said, we're not making enough money, I want a real job. But me, I kind of hung in there and stayed in there and eventually got a break. So that's roughly what growing up for me was like. I went through all the phases that all teenagers go through, very very conscious of fashions and so on, etc. I didn't have a lot of money to go out and buy what I wanted, but when I could, I did. I tried to look dapper for the girls. And all the time we were listening to people like Little Richard, Bill Haley, Elvis, Chuck Berry. These were the foundations. When rock and roll came along, it changed our lives, all of us. Suddenly we had music that was ours, not our parents. Can you remember a specific song from growing up that you really loved? Well, of course, I, I had favorites long before rock and roll came along. I was a big, big fan of Nat King Cole, for instance, and uh, Brooke Benson. Well, when rock came along, uh, the first one that blew us away, believe it or not, and it probably was in America too, was Rock Around the Clock by Bill Haley. Because suddenly the backbeat was laid right up front. It was mixed right up front, the backbeat on the drum. And it just made you want to get up and dance. It's the same beat they had during the jitterbug days of the 40s, only it wasn't so pronounced then. Suddenly this beat was right up and uh, what we call bopping in England came along. It was the kind of dance you did. I guess you called it jive here. But anyway, uh, that came along. So rock around the clock turned my life around. And then Little Richard, when I heard wop ba ba la ba bamboo I thought, I know what I'm going to do when I grow up. I'm going to get into music. Of course, my dad said, son, that's not music. <laughs> <laughs> when did you realize that you, in particular, were a musical guy? I grew up in a musical family. My father could play any, anything he put his hands on. And we all sang. And my brother played guitar. My father played fiddle and piano. And we used to have in the days, and this is, it sounds very romantic, but it's true. We would sit around and we would sing songs together in harmony. And Daddy did sing bass because he had the big low voice, you know. And we all learned to sing harmonies. And I was in church choirs as well. So I learned harmonies. I had the basics of harmonies went by, by my middle teens. And so when I joined this doo-wop group, which was called the Sapphires, I found my niche. I knew I was in the right place. I was making music and interpreting it in the way we wanted to. And it was just, I thought right there and then at the age of 18 that this was my life. I was going to be in music forever. What was your first impression of Roger Greenaway? Well, I knew Roger Greenaway, again, around about the age of 18, when he was in a rival group from Bristol called the Kestrels. And they were a doo-wop group too, just four singers without instruments. And I remember seeing them once. We were in a contest at our local theater. It was quite a big contest. And the Kestrels won. I remember being very jealous, but thinking the little guy, the little blonde guy, the lead singer, was fantastic. I'd never seen anybody so professional in all my life. That was my introduction to Roger Greenaway. Later on, we had the same manager for a long time in Bristol, and we got to know each other pretty well. And I would sit around on the piano and play songs, and so would Roger. And we realized we could both write songs. This was before, uh, around about 1960. Well, then Roger went in the army with the other casuals. I missed it by about six months, thank God. Call up the National Service. He went in the army and disappeared for a couple of years, and me and my group, we went on the road. 
Well, when the group broke up, I started trying to get into some kind of legit theater. And I got into doing pantomimes, summer seasons. And then one day I get a call from my old manager and he said, one of the boys is dropping out of the Kestrels. And Roger Greenaway wants to know if you would like to take his place. Well, I jumped at it because they were quite a well-known group. They were touring. They were opening for people like the Beatles and so on and all the big stars of that day. And so I said, yes, Rog. Well, I joined them after I finished a, a season in, I was doing in Cardiff in the theater. I joined Roger and went on the road with him and learned the whole repertoire, the catalog of songs that they had. And we were in the theater one day. It was about 1960, late 64. We were on a tour with people like Herman's Hermits and forget some other people. Anyway, Roger just said, I've got a little tune. And we both got our ukuleles out and he, he played la da 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 He said, could you help me with the lyric? And in the space of two hours, we've written the whole song. That was how Roger and I got off. And my feelings for Roger Greenaway, let me tell you, he's still a hero of mine because he dragged me into the top echelon in the music business. I got to see real publishers. Do you still keep in touch with Roger? Oh, yes. We're in touch all the time. We're, we're still like brothers and always will be. He's known as Little Roger and I'm known as Big Roger because I'm about five inches taller than him. When people call me up, they say, how's Little Roger? Have you heard from Little Roger lately? <laughs> so, yes, we stay in touch very much. So we see each other. In fact, he was in my home a couple of months ago. He was here visiting in Nashville, and I had him over and had a dinner in his honor. So, yes, we stay in touch. And you all were known for a while as David and Jonathan, correct? We had about two years as David and Jonathan. What had happened is we wrote the song, You Got Your Troubles, I Got Mine, which the Fortunes eventually had a big hit with. But before they got hold of it, the Fortunes, George Martin heard it. And he called us in his office one day, and this is the George Martin, the Beatles, Jerry and the Pacemakers, all these people's producer, you know, number one producer in the world. And we sat down, and he said, I really like your song a lot. And he said, but I especially like the way you sing it. I'd like to produce you. Well, needless to say, Roger and I floated out of that office on air. I mean, we thought, well, that's it. We're going to be huge. We're going to be famous. Well, we eventually did record it, but it, we recorded it too late to beat the Fortunes version, which went out. Mainly because George was in the studio and he was busy finishing up an album called Rubber Soul. And so that's what happened to our chance to have our first hit with our own song. And George came to us at the end of Rubber Soul, and he said, look, I know we've missed out and you got your troubles. He said, but I've got a song that the boys have just recorded, the boys being the Beatles. He said, called Michelle, and he said, I think it could be a hit. See if you can work up a version, which Roger and I did. We made the record, and our record was the one that was really the big hit in the States. It went kind of top ten. Because of that, we came over to visit the United States and walked around like little Englishmen with the hit record, and it was wonderful. And that was the story of David and Jonathan. We, we recorded for another couple of years, and we had another big hit and a couple of semi-hits. We decided after two years of being David and Jonathan that we were neglecting our songwriting. And we were right, because after that, we had a handful of hits. We just went on a run, you know. One of the songs I listened to was Lovers of the World Unite. Yes. There's a theme going around at the time. This is the early 60s. Workers of the World Unite, and it was a union kind of inspired slogan. And one day I just came up with the idea of lovers of the world unite, you know. It's just a racky old world. The lovers of the world, the young people should get together, you know, 
and change the world. It was just the beginning, but not quite the beginning of the Brotherhood thing that happened in the late 60s, you know. But anyway, that's what happened with that song. Tell us about Blue Mink. Well, Blue Mink was a group that got together. They were a bunch of professional musicians, studio musicians. And they formed this group to make an instrumental album. But they ended up writing some songs as well. And their manager said, well, you need to get a couple of real singers in because none of the guys could sing, the four musicians. So they scattered around. They asked Madeline Bell, who was a well-known black singer in England at the time. She came over from America. Great, wonderful singer. I used to do sessions with the lots. That's how we knew each other. Then they asked Roger Greenaway if he'd like to be the male singer and sing some of these songs. And Roger said, no, that's not really something I want to do anymore. He said, ask Roger Cook. He might be interested. So I was invited to join them. And we ended up singing some of these songs that the boys had written, the musicians. And to tell you the truth, there wasn't a hit amongst them. They weren't that good. And so their manager said, well, why doesn't Roger Cook write your song? He's a hit songwriter, and I was at the time. I was hot, you know. So I sat down and wrote a song called Melting Pop, which was all about the whole world coming together, all, all the colors, throwing them in a melting pot and turning out coffee-colored people, diffused down to coffee colors. And wouldn't that be a wonderful thing? Well, Europe thought it was a wonderful thing. A lot of America didn't really like the idea too much at that time in the late 60s. So on the strength of California, we got in the charts up to the 60s somewhere, I think. But the rest of America said, no, I don't think that's a great idea. The, the lyric of the song went, take a pinch of white man, wrap it up in black skin, add a touch of blue blood and a little bitty bit of red Indian boy. Curly black and kinkies mixed with yellow chinkies. <laughs> anyway, the lyric went like that. And it wasn't very acceptable at the time. Our special guest is Mr. Roger Cook. Tell us about some of the work you did in the studio with Sir Elton John. Oh, well, that was that was nothing more than me singing backups on the, about the first three albums. He was a friend of mine, a good friend from our early publishing days. In fact, he wanted to record some songs of mine. His manager, publisher, wouldn't let him. He said, no, you got to write your own songs. And I think he had a good idea there. But Elton remains a friend to this day, and he was a big friend then. In fact, he came out and played with Blue Mink as a relief pianist for us on some tours. And he also accompanied me as a solo artist once. He was a friend anyway, and he just asked a couple of us, Roger Greenway, Madeline Bell, a guy called Tony Burroughs and others, if we were seen back up on his albums. And we did for the first three albums, and they were successful albums. And we had, I think we had a very good choir sound going for us. You've written with so many great songwriters, as we talked about Roger Greenway, Albert Hammond, Mike Hazelwood. Was there a songwriter that you've worked with that you felt was the most talented? Lord, that's a tough one. I've written with some great songwriters, lots of them, and I, I blessed all of them because the collaborations earned a lot of money. A lot of the records are still played today. Like the thing I wrote with Adam Clark, Long Cool Woman and Black, still gets played to death today. And you've got your troubles with Roger Greenaway and other songs, but I, I guess the one I admired the most that I got to write with the most was John Prine, who was a great singer-songwriter, as you probably know. And he and I became friends in the early 80s, and we stayed friends, and we used to sit up at night writing a lot of songs. He cut a lot of the songs, and he appeared on a lot of his albums, but especially uh, two of the songs went to number one as country records. 
which is kind of unique for John because although the songs are very famous, they're not the material of number one songs normally, you know. So I'd say John was probably my favorite co-writer in lots of ways. Somebody I had held in high esteem that I got to write with. But I've written with wonderful people, people like Guy Clark. I even sat down once to write with Hal David. But I was writing the lyric, and that was a mistake because he was going to write the lyric. So <laughs> we ended up not having the song. You just mentioned John Prine. What is he like on a personal level when you get together and write a song? He's just a wonderful man. I can say this quite honestly. They should have a definition in the... Um, the dictionary says, under gentleman, John Prine. He's a true friend, a lovely man, and a very good friend, a very generous, good friend, and a lot of fun to write with because he comes up with some amazing lines. He has a lovely twinkle in his heart. I like to say twinkle in his heart rather than his eye because that's what it is. It's a twinkle. He looks at the world a little differently than other people do. He's a blue-collar poet, if you like, and he's just... He's wonderful to write with. I'm a great fan. We go, we do a lot of fishing. We play a lot of snooker together, which is an English sport, like billiards. I love them to death. This is probably another tough question. Who do you think has done the best job at interpreting a Roger Cook song? A few people, really. I can't say anybody has done the best job. I thought Alan Cloud did a great job on Long Cool Woman. I think he, he nailed the whole atmosphere of the song. So I'm still very pleased with that record. Don Williams did a song that I wrote with a friend called Sammy Hogan called I Believe in You. Don sang quite a few of my songs, and he sang all of them great. He nailed that one perfectly. And whenever I hear it, I, I'm very pleased that he cut that record. I Believe in You happens to be a song that I love. Love that song. And I wanted to ask you specifically about writing it. What was the inspiration? Well, I kind of had the song half of it and all by myself. I'd been messing around with it for a few weeks and I had lots of lines in the end they got rejected, you know, by myself. I had lots of lines going and I liked the the backwards and forwards of I don't believe in this but I do believe in this. And that's a neat way to write as a songwriter, to put up a negative and then put up a positive. And lots of songwriters do that in different ways. Anything you can do I can do better, you know. I got together with this friend of mine, Sammy Hogan, one night. We sat up in the office, at my office, at about two in the morning, playing backgammon. And I said to him, I've got this song. And I said, I know I've got lots of lines. I said, but a lot of them are wrong. I said, you want to help me out? And he said, yes. He'd been writing for a while, you know. So we sat down between us. We went backwards and forwards on lines. We rejected the bad ones, reinforced the good ones. And after about two hours or so, we had the song that you know of today. In actual fact, Don still didn't like some of the lines in the song. He changed a couple of lines. I let him get away with it, too, because he was Don Williams, and I knew I was going to have a big record. He wouldn't sing. Uh, I sang a line, sometimes I don't give a damn. Well, Don wouldn't sing that in 1978. So he sang, sometimes I wonder who I am, which was a little weaker, but words with the song. And there's a couple of other lines. I won't go into too much, but... Uh, that's the way the song ended up being written. And I must say, I went in the studio and I demoed it with the guy who ended up playing the guitar, licks on that, set on Don session. He did my demo. And so, really, in a way, it was such a good demo, all Don had to do was go in there, basically, and reproduce it, which is what they did. Only they made it a little better because they had time in the studio to do it. 
one of the songs that you co-wrote is it's so well known i'd like to teach the world to sing what inspired that well coca-cola inspired the lyric of the song what it was, Roger and I had had this old song for a long time. I had a pretty melody, but the song was a dog. The lyric wasn't very good. There was a record out on it that died the death immediately upon release, and I'm glad it did. And we, we've been doing coachings for a long time with the Coca-Cola people. It was actually McCann Erickson, the advertising agency that commissioned. A guy called Bill Backer and Billy Davis, they used to commission us to go in and sit down and write songs with them we provide all the pop background to the songs and the melody, and they would straighten out the lyrics for the jingles. We just saw him, we had another meeting, and Bill Backer said, we've got this new idea. We're going to go, instead of the things go better with Coca-Cola, we've got this new slogan. It's the real thing. In the back of your mind, what you're hoping to find is the real thing. Well, they had that written already, the Coke guys, the um, jingle guys. So they asked Roger and I if we had a tune that would work with that. And we thought of this old tune. And we sang it to him, you know, on the melody. Oh, yeah, they liked that very much. It was catchy. And in the space of about five hours, jingles take a long time to write. Space of about five hours, we walked around the office with our heads down and our hands up against our foreheads and hammered out the rest of the lyric. And what happened, of course, it went out as a jingle. Funny enough, it, it kind of failed as a rave jingle. But then the McCann Erickson people, responding to a request by Coca-Cola, decided they were going to do a, called a kind of world anthemic video and picture all these kids from the diplomats' kids in London up on the hillside holding Cokes and singing, I'd like to teach the world to sing. They tried to film it in London for about three days and it rained every day. So in the end, they moved the whole thing over to Rome and they shot it in Rome. Funny enough, in Rome... The first day of filming, it rained all day long. <laughs> but a couple of days later, they finished the filming with all these kids from the diplomatic embassies in Rome. That's how that came about. Roger and I had already been paid for the jingle, and we thought that's the end of that. It was a minute jingle, and that was it. It was to my utter amazement when they decided, these two guys, um, Bill Back and Billy Davis, that there was such a demand coming into Coca-Cola plants for the lyrics or the sheet music that they put out a record. And there was a record by the group, I think, called the Hilltoppers. It was started going up the charts big. And then the guy, Billy Davis, went and recorded the new Seekers singing it. And that shot up the charts to two. And the two of them went up the charts together. And I do believe both persons were in the top 20 at one time. And the new Seekers record went on up and up and up. That's basically the story of that song. It was never meant to be a song. It was written as a one-minute jingle. When someone listens to your music, what do you hope that the listener gets out of that experience? I hope that basically the lyric is supported by the melody. In other words, I think sometimes the wrong melody can ruin the lyric and the wrong lyric can ruin the melody. And a good songwriter will find a, a songwriter will find a way to make the melody and the lyric synonymous with each other. It's just something you can't sing the melody without wanting to sing the lyrics and vice versa. And a good songwriter will open up the voice in certain places, make the voice sound better by putting the right consonant sounds, um, vowel sounds on, say, high notes and lower notes, which just enrich the whole experience of the song. And I'm hoping people know that, even if they don't know it. I just hope they know it subliminally, that they listen to something that's just 
a complete success as a lyric and a melody together. And of course, I mean, the backing is very important too. Whoever produces the record has got to get the idea of the record, of the song over. And hopefully you get an artist who can sing the damn thing. I think people know, I really do think people know the difference between a good song and an ordinary song. I think regular, ordinary people know it, even though they can't do it themselves. They know it when they hear it. What is the best thing about being Roger Cook? Well, I got five children I adore. It's just I, people do say now and again because I, I go out and perform and I'll sing a few of my old songs. And then people will come up to me afterwards and say, man, you just sang my teenagehood. All those songs, man, that's, that's what I listened to when I was a kid. It's very nice. And I like the fact that I, I made enough of a name to have a decent life. I can play some golf. I can drink some decent wine when I want to. I just feel like I succeeded in what I wanted to do, which was make music. And I think I'm very, very lucky in that way. Nashville's got 10,000, 15,000 songwriters, guys who are trying to make it as a profession. And about 1% of those make it at all. Mm. So for me to have had a dream of mine come true, I guess that makes me very happy to be Roger Cook. For anyone who's listening to our interview, wherever they are in the world, what would you like to say to them? Peace. Peace. Love one another. I really mean that. I try to get that across in my songs. You can't love enough and you can't be loved enough. And if that shows through in the music now and again, in certain songs, you get a nice warm buzz from them. Well, enjoy that buzz because music's one of the, not necessarily one of the free things, but one of the most available things at a low price in your life. Go out and buy music, support songwriters, and support artists, because it's getting harder and harder for songwriters. I've seen about 40% of my income wiped out in the last 10 years because of digitalization. The fact is people don't go out and buy albums like they used to. So I think I lived through the good days. I re well, I know I did. But I would just say to people, enjoy life. I've come to, I'm in the ultimate of my life, and I've got to tell you, I realize now that life is short. If you're not having fun, you're not doing your job properly. There. Well spoken. My last question, who is Roger Cook? One lucky son of a bitch. <laughs> that's about who I am. That's all. I'm an Englishman living in America because I love America and I love Americans. I think they're warm, friendly people. A little warlike at times, but then so is bloody Europe. <laughs> Roger Cook is an Englishman living in America who's been bloody lucky in his life, and I'm very happy for it. Mr. Cook, thank you very much for sharing with us. Thank you, Mr. Leslie, or I should say thank you, Paul. Thank you. Call me Paul. You have a good holiday and a good Christmas. All right. Bless you. I've enjoyed this so much. Thank you very much, Paul. All right. Cheers. Bye for now. The Paul Leslie Hour is hosted, produced, and written by Paul Leslie for Lifestyles Entertainment and Media. The Paul Leslie theme song composed, recorded, and produced by Jeff Pike. Outro music composed, recorded, and produced by John Goodwin, originally appearing in the short film Malukas and Vulnerable Jelly Things. Please consider subscribing to the Paul Leslie Hour, and if you like us, give us a review. It'll help other people to find this content. All past interviews are also available on YouTube. 
For more information, you can visit thepaulleslie.com and be sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at ThePaulLeslie. Thanks for listening. Be good.